This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime again. Yeah, you ready for part two? I sure am. We just got through part one, and now you guys are ready for part two. So obviously, if you didn't listen to part one, we recommend you going back and listening to it. But if you didn't, pretty much we just told you about how Jim Jones was born and how he grew up and his family was kind of wacky and then how he married his wife and then decided he was a dick, but she stayed (laughs) with him anyway. And then he like went to Brazil and that didn't work out. So he came back and then that didn't work out. So then they moved to California and then he started talking real openly with his members about sex stuff and (laughs) it got a little awkward and now he's sleeping with all of his members. So that's pretty much where we're at. So we do highly suggest you go back and listen to the recap, but I think Erica pretty much covered it really well. He's a lunatic, and we're about to get into some more of his lunatune antics. So anyway, all of his affairs are real public by now because he didn't consider them affairs. It was more of a duty. He also made it clear at some point that there was no God and that this was all about politics. Well, I didn't even think, did Carolyn just go along with this too? She was like, yeah, no, this is great. Yes. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. She was a part of the inner circle so quickly and stuff. Yeah. All right. She's nuts, too. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk about how Carolyn and Larry were a lot like Jim. Like, they had a lot of the same ideal. Like, she was really into what he was into. Like, everything says that Marcy was, like, a very good person and that she was not into any of this dark, all this stuff that Jim Jones would eventually become about. They say Carolyn was like that. She was evil. Yeah. Pretty much. So, yes, she went along with it. Like I said, at some point he made it real clear that there was no God and that this was all about politics and communism and fighting the man. There was no God. Jim Jones was their God now if they needed one. Yeah, didn't he say, like, if you have no father, I'll be your father. If you have Mm -hmm. no husband, I'll be your husband. And if, like, you have no God, I'll be your God. And if basically I'll be everything that you need it to be. I need you need to be. If you need it, I am it. Yeah. Yep. He wanted to be everything to everybody in his church. But that's a bold move. Like recruit a bunch of religious people to your church and then just all of a sudden be like, oh, we're not doing the whole religion thing anymore. It's very bold. Yeah. Yeah. He said King James was a racist slave owner. So the Bible was full of lies that was holding black people down. He would throw Bibles across the room like it was it was really I mean, I when I was watching this, I was like, how? Did he get a bunch of religious people to just watch him throw a Bible across the room and then they cheered? Like, what is happening here? People can be very easily manipulated to thinking that uh, somebody is greater than they are. Yeah, so the temple branched out, too. They opened up churches in L.A. and San Francisco. Obviously, there was different levels because, like, the churches in L.A. didn't have the commune and all that kind of stuff. So it was more of just like a... They were incorporating and they were getting more donations, but they were letting that church run, like how it did in the beginning, you know, where it was, like, all good. But, like, the real people's temple was where Jim Jones was. This stuff was obviously all gradual, but he had a way of controlling everybody. He was becoming a dictator. He had this huge following, and he could really make a difference in the local area by doing good things, and he started to realize that he was getting prominent members. He would wine and dine these rich, powerful members and treat them a lot differently than the other people that were living on the commune. A local assistant district attorney for Mendocino County named Tim Stone and his wife, Grace Stone, joined the People's Temple after Tim had hired them to renovate the district attorney's office. Like, he hired the People's Temple to come in and do the work, and he talked to a lot of them and liked them and liked their mission and their racial integration, so he joined the church. And Jim Jones really wined and dined Tim and Grace because they were wealthy, they had power and influence, he treated them super well, and they quickly became part of his inner circle. And this is also around the time that he started getting in with local politicians. He could get his followers to go campaign for people, like, by the hundreds. And then because of their numbers, 
He could rig an election. He would bust them to polling stations and have them go vote for a specific candidate and then on to another and vote for the same guy at another station, like doing voter fraud to rig local elections. Because then the politician would owe him favors when totally. they got elected. Oh, yeah. So one of these local elections that this happened with was the mayoral race for San Francisco. Once the election was over, the new mayor, George Moscone, appointed Jim Jones as the chairman of the housing committee for the city of San Francisco. And then Jim wow. Jones started giving his followers jobs with the city and the housing committee. And he was, like, connected now politically, so he was getting them jobs in other city offices. He was... Just putting people in the right spots where he wanted them. <laughs> Just playing chess with them. You pretty much. I mean, playing chess with real people. Yeah. Making them as like the, his little pawns. But he would also blackmail these politicians and stuff. He would throw these parties and he would invite them. And then he would have girls hit on them and take them to a back room and do things and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day he would call them and he'd be like, oh, wasn't that party so much fun last night? Hey, by the way, that girl that you, you know, she was 14. Oh, so I'm going to need you to do this stuff for me so I don't tell anybody about that. Like he would do stuff like that, like set him up to be blackmailed pretty much. Would it be that they weren't even 14? He would just tell them that they were so like. Oh, could be. Yeah. Could be. I mean, I wouldn't put it past Jim Jones, for sure. Right. I mean, somebody who's willing to say it, it's probably willing to do it, but also probably willing to lie about it, too. So <laughs> Right. And you never know with Jim Jones when he's lying or when he's telling the truth, which is, like I said, a whole thing with his followers. They know that, too. It's because he can't see his eyes because of those glasses. Yeah. But a lot of times they know that he's lying, too, but they think he's lying for the greater good. So either way, he's making moves in the politics world. He's playing the game. He's meeting with people like Rosalind Carter and Walter Mondale and... Harvey Milk. Yep. He was making really, really important connections politically, which allowed him to continue operating what was now obviously a cult. Like, if you took any closer look at it, it was obviously a cult. So Jones was feeling pretty untouchable at this point. But then eight members of his church defected at the same time. Doesn't seem so bad when there's thousands of people in it. You would think. But Jones and his ego, this was a huge rejection for him. Eight people at the same time. And in their letter to him, they pretty much told him it's because of your inner circle. They were still so scared of Jim Jones that in their letter when they defected, they said, we will never speak out against the People's Temple, but we want you to know why we're leaving. And we're leaving because you preach racial inequality, but your entire inner circle is white. And they suck. And they <laughs> right? hate us. And they're mean to us. And they do, you know, everything that they were saying was what Jim Jones ordered these people to do but the people who were leaving were blaming the inner circle so then of course Jim Jones was like you inner circle people fucked up you how did you not see this coming you know this is crazy and they said they weren't going to speak out against the people's temple but things slowly started coming out about the people's temple about maybe there was abuse maybe there was sexual physical financial abuse things started to be said and there was an eight-part expose in the san francisco examiner about all the stuff that was going on inside the temple and only four were released and then jones used his public influence to get the story cut but the word was getting out and jones was feeling the heat People were hearing rumors about these ceremonies that he called catharsis, where he would punish people like publicly with beatings and torture. You got a guy like this who's supposed to be a leader and he's supposed to be changing the community for the good, for the greater good. And instead, he's doing the exact opposite to his followers and stuff like it's, you know. Yeah, he's making people stand naked in front of an entire meeting full of people for hours while they ridiculed her body and then made her take an ice bath. And then they put snakes on this other lady who was like totally afraid of snakes. And then they would lock people in underground boxes for hours at a time. Well, or they would just flat out beat people up. Well, and what they would do to kids, too, they would send kids to what they would call the well. And basically they would hang kids upside down overnight in this well. Like they would suspend them. I don't, I'm guessing from, I don't know, their waste or whatever, but suspend them overnight in a well. Like, this dude is torturing people and obviously children. So, yeah, like, it's yep. getting bad and it got bad really quick. Yeah, and he's getting more and more paranoid that his important political connections are going to discover that these rumors were true and that he was a 
hardcore communists and they would strip him of his tax exemption status and probably throw him in jail like a lot he was really really paranoid but a lot of it was because jones was now hooked on amphetamines wow and was doing drugs constantly never sleeping just doing drugs and he wouldn't let his followers sleep either but they didn't get the meth Like they didn't get the help. So, <laughs> they just had to do it on their own. Yeah. So this is how like like we talked about before, how he would control them. But this is why he's always wearing those big black sunglasses that you were talking about, because he's a hot mess. Yeah. His eyes are bloodshot and puffy and messed up. He hasn't slept in days. And of course, he told his people about the sunglasses. He told them it was because his power was so intense that if he looked anyone in the eye, they would just burn up. Wow. How'd they get so lucky to be around such a cool guy like that? I know. I was like, damn. I would have just been like, hey, sun never sets when you're this cool. Yeah. Like, you could <laughs> yeah, just be cooler right? about it, Jim. Like, not everything's so intense, man. But anyway, he was preaching more and more about this race war and the KKK and the Nazis and everybody was out to get them. And then it turned into the American government was out to get them and they're in bed with the Nazis. And he would back this up with like random arsons and attacks, but none of them were real. They were all orchestrated by him, but it caused fear in his members. Like they were genuinely scared. He was regularly raping them and it was just, it was awful. And when somebody would get pregnant, he would force them to have an abortion because it went against their social beliefs to bring more people into the world. That's crazy too. And that's actually very anti-religion and culty because normally they want you to like pop kids out so that they have more followers. Yeah. Which in the beginning was his deal. More followers, more, you know, but then now we're getting into this, like he's gone off the rails. So Grace Stone, remember the district attorney, Tim Stone? Yeah. Well, she was one of these women who became pregnant and he had her keep this baby instead of getting rid of it because it was hit, you know, because he liked her or whatever. Right. And he put, but it was all a manipulation thing because he put Tim as the father on the birth certificate and made him draw up a legal document saying that John Victor Stone was actually Jim Jones's son because Tim wasn't virile enough to sire a child with his wife. So he had to beg Jim to do it. And Tim is lucky to raise this child. Holy shit. Like, like how that, humiliate, like there's, that is like so wrong on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, he's essentially, he's, he's castrating him in, in a way, you know, like just yeah. totally like, yeah, you're not, you know, you don't have what it takes to have a baby. Like there's not a lot going on in, in that body of yours. So you're lucky that it's mine. Not only Tim though, but also the witness to this contract that was signed was Jim Jones's wife, Marcy. He made her be a witness. Now- <sighs> I know, it's just horrible. And she's just buying all this stuff hook, line, and sinker? Like, she's still right no. now just totally... Oh, okay. No. She actually left him for a while during this time and, like, moved off the commune. But she still would come back a lot because her children were all there. And where else is she going to go? Well, she left and she started another relationship with another man and wanted to take her kids and bounce. And Jim would not let her have her kids. And... Eventually, he convinced her that she'll never get out, like, for real. Like, she'll never get her kids. She'll never be able to leave. Like, she should just come back because he's going to kill her if she leaves. Like, pretty much. Like, he scares her eventually into coming back. That's how they get you. Yeah. So, no, she didn't buy it hook, line, and sinker. There was a lot of times where she was like, this is garbage. And she wanted out. So, eventually, in Los Angeles, he was arrested for propositioning an undercover police officer in a men's restroom and then masturbating in front of him. So, he was kind of spiraling out of control at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, that is is spiraling behavior. You know, that's not... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This charge would later get covered up and thrown out, but he was obviously losing control and he knew it. So he decided to recheck in with that whole Guyana thing and he brokered a deal with Guyana officials. He went to South America and he leased this 3,000 acre piece of land that he had visited over 10 years before. But by now they had gained their independence from Britain and they were really leaning socialist, but they had a problem that Jones could help them with too. The area that they wanted to lease him that would become Jonestown, which is like an egotistical play on Georgetown, which is Guyana's capital. 
He mm. he named the town George Jonestown after himself, but Georgetown is Guyana's capital. I didn't know that. I knew he named it Jonestown for obvious reasons, but not that obvious. Yeah. So the issue that they needed Jones's help with was the Venezuelan border of Guyana. Guyana didn't have a military after they gained their independence from Britain. So Venezuela was kind of like, hey, we're probably just going to take your land because you don't have any way to protect it. So the Guyanese authorities were like, cool. If we put a bunch of armed Americans right on the border, that'll keep the Venezuelans out. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's a win win. It. Yeah. Yeah. So they brokered this deal with Jones and he started preaching a lot about Jonestown, which he actually called the People's Temple Agricultural Project. He knew he was running out of time in California before he was busted as a fraud and all this illegal stuff he was doing. And he needed to get the people who still believed in him to an isolated location that they could never leave. And he started sending small groups of trusted temple members to Guyana to start building Jonestown because it would take a long time. It took like six months just to build the road from the closest airstrip to where they, the little Jonestown commune was going to be. It took like six months just to build the road. Well, yeah, it was like seven miles long, I think, right? Yeah. Like this place was as remote as you can get. It was 150 miles to Georgetown. Wow. Like you had to yeah. get there by plane. And it was miles and miles and miles from the nearest other road or airstrip. So it's going to take a while. So he starts sending people over slowly to build this Jonestown. Meanwhile, in California, he kept selling this pipe dream to all of his members about how they'll live in this tropical jungle and they'll grow all their own fruits and vegetables and chickens and they'll build their own houses and it'll be this amazing commune, better than they've ever had it in America. There'll be a school and a playground and everybody can work and just live this like socialist, racially integrated dream commune lifestyle. But he was also still doing batshit things like giving his entire inner circle a glass of wine at a meeting and then after they drank it, telling them it was poisoned and that they had 45 minutes to live because he wanted to test their loyalty. Man, what a great leader. Really testing to make sure that they are as strong and capable as he wants them to be. But I don't know how this tested their loyalty. He literally told them it was wine, they drank it, and then he told them it was poison. He didn't tell them it was poison and then they drank it. Like, how did this test their loyalty? You already gave it to them, idiot. You <laughs> tricked them into drinking it. I mean, I guess maybe if they started trying to throw up themselves or something, like that would have been the cause or, you know, yeah, maybe. see how they reacted. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't poison, but he talked a lot about suicide, how someday they might have to do it as like the ultimate pro-communist act that they could do, like to really show the American government, we killed ourselves for this cause. Like he started really preaching this a lot around this time. Then a huge... Loss for Jim, a super big betrayal was Grace Stone, the district attorney's wife, the one he had the kid with, left the church. She defected and she was one of his inner circle trusted members and all that stuff. And her and her ex-husband, Tim Stone, defected at this time. Hmm. But because they had signed over custody of their son, John Victor, the kid who may or may not have been Jim's, but they think he probably was, they had to take Jim to court to get custody back. So they had to leave their son in the People's Temple. So this custody battle ensues, and it's bad, and it's ugly. And Jones was really losing his grip. Loyal members, people he trusted, were leaving, speaking out about him. Eventually, Tim and Grace were granted custody of John Victor Stone. But by the time that they were granted custody... Jim Jones had already left for Guyana, and he took 500 to 700 people with him, including John Victor. That's so many people. That is so many people to take with you on something like this. Yeah, especially because Jonestown was not even close to being ready for that amount of people. Right. They had nothing. They didn't have housing or food or anything for that amount of people. It was a shit show. And most importantly, they had no way of getting back. Well, yeah, because he took all their money and their passports and everything as soon as they got there. Yep. So he also paid off the Guyanese officials to import weapons and drugs, but couldn't feed his people. But he was buying guns and drugs. <laughs> anyway, they got up at sunup every day 
They ate a tiny bowl of rice with gravy. They worked super hard physical labor in the Guyanese jungle. And then mid-afternoon, they got another bowl of rice and gravy. And then they worked super hard in the jungle till sundown for another bowl of rice and gravy. And they were exhausted wow. from malnutrition. Yeah, they weren't getting any protein in any exactly. of this. Like, they're not actually putting anything back into their body. They're just putting carbs to get up. But, like, there's no actual sus substance in in what they're doing you know like it's no wonder that these people were like dying and miserable and you know skin and bones and stuff i mean this is a almost a willing concentration camp like he's getting his wish totally. you know he was getting to be like hitler more totally and, more. and the heat and the living in squalor and they didn't have enough water i mean people were getting sick it was bad but the one thing that was built first because obviously it was a huge priority was this big covered pavilion where Jim could give his sermons and an intercom system with loudspeakers all over the whole compound. So after they were done with these hardcore days working in the Guyanese jungle for on no food and not enough sleep and no water, they would meet under this pavilion, this covered pavilion, and Jim Jones would preach for hours into the evening, sometimes all night long, and then the, he had armed guards all around him who were tasked with making sure nobody fell asleep. Jeez, like, dude, we don't care. We're so, so tired. tired. We're so malnourished. Like, how do they expect him to stay awake and then do this again for you the next day? Like, it's insanity. Yep. And every time Jones preached, it was recorded on audio tapes. And when Jones was not giving a live speech because people were working during the day or he was too high or too tired, he would just pump that shit through the loudspeaker system 24 hours a day. Like old reruns of old sermons. They had to listen to this rambling lunatic 24 hours a day it's so bizarre and so nuts that he had this many people who would who were willing to follow him and like believe yeah. in everything that he said but i mean sleep depriving people and not giving them the proper nutrition like yeah they're dependent on you for they're very little like they can't step out of line plus they didn't know that it was going to be like this when they were sold a bill of goods right about guyana that was not true which really sucks because if you would have put the time and money in it it probably could have been true but it wasn't ready so the only news they got from the main from America was what Jones would tell them. He would sit up at this pulpit and he would read the American newspaper, but he wasn't reading what it was actually saying. He would just make up all these wild stories and tell these people that black people were being thrown into concentration camps in America and the KKK overthrew the government and like wild stuff. Yeah, absolutely batshit stuff. Not only did they not think Guyana was going to be what they were, they also thought they didn't have anything good to go back to either. Like, they thought America was literally in flames. So they're tired, they're malnourished, they're all depressed. Like, you know, like, they're exactly it's bad. It's just getting worse and worse. So they had set up sort of like this point of entry in Georgetown, which, like I said, is the capital of Guyana. That's where you have to, like, fly into when you're coming from America. This point of entry, like, office place or whatever was run by this lady named Sharon Amos. She would communicate with Jones at Jonestown through like a two-way radio, and all the members would be checking in at this house when they arrived in Guyana because Jones was monitoring everybody's mail at Jonestown and only let people write to their families in America about how wonderful Georgetown was, and they all needed to come and live in this beautiful promised land. And So the people in America weren't hearing any of the bad stuff. They were only getting good letters. So new members were arriving all the time because they thought this was place was great. So whenever new members arrived, they would go to this checkpoint area and they would get their passports and any money, possessions, valuables, everything taken away from them. And then they'd be sent to Jonestown. I mean, and that makes sense that they'd have all of their possessions taken away because Jonestown needs everything that they can get financially. Yes. Like they're not making any money anymore. You know, they left the United States and, you know, so all of the the government assistance they were getting for all those kids and whatever else, like it's gone. There's it's all washed yep. up. That's exactly right. Like all the elderly people's social security checks, that was a lot of money that was coming in every month to the church because they were signing it over. All that stuff is gone because they left America. 
even though Jones had millions of dollars that he had stolen and hoarded over the years, he wouldn't use that money to run or even establish Jonestown. He would take everything when people came and would force people to work and then take the money. It was really bad, but nobody knew because he was monitoring the communications. So like nobody in America knew what was going on at Jonestown because they were only getting good letters that he was forcing people to write to their families. So there was also another member back in San Francisco that defected at this time. And after she was out, she tried to get her husband, Bob, to leave. He didn't. But her husband, later on, they found out his phone was tapped and the temple heard this conversation between him and his wife. And Bob was later found dead on the railroad tracks. And it was like kind of officially said that he fell asleep on the on the track and then was run over which was obviously pretty unlikely yeah yeah probably yeah. although a lot of members were feeling hopeless and having suicidal thoughts by this point because jones had been preaching about it for years you know they thought this was the end like they literally were suicidal but bob's dad didn't think that it was suicide he's like no my kid wouldn't have done that you know whatever so he went with grace and tim stone to Congressman Leo Ryan, who he knew personally and was like, hey, I need a favor. And this was back in the day when congressmen and congresswomen actually worked. Like they didn't just sit behind desks <laughs> and collect money for doing sketchy shit. Like they actually did stuff. They cared about things that were going on within their district. And so they called this group that was forming the Concerned Relatives. And Leo Ryan was like kind of spearheading this because he was their congressman. Along with some of these other public officials that got some severe backlash from people on how pro-Jim Jones they were before all this shit came out. You know, like that mayor that he was blackmailing and stuff. Right. So the embassy had interviewed members of Jonestown the U.S. Embassy in Guyana, and nobody spoke up about being held against their will. And so they quit checking. They quit checking in on them and asking them questions because they were afraid that the People's Temple would sue the embassy for infringing on their religious rights. So they were like, well, we asked. They don't want to leave. Bye. So the embassy was like, <laughs> no help. But Jones' paranoia was like at an all-time high. By the time he had been in Jonestown like a year, he was terribly depressed, sadistic. They would do routine practice runs of this mass suicide that he called revolutionary suicide. And he had everybody just as paranoid as him. There was something they called the six-day siege, where he called like an emergency meeting and armed everybody with guns and rifles and had them stand guard for six days because of a government raid that was coming to kill all of them. And then at the end, he was like, okay, we won. Go back to work. After not sleeping or eating or doing shit for six days, he was just like, we won. They're like, what did we win? There was nothing. Doesn't matter. Go back to work. Exactly. So he didn't believe he could trust the Guyana officials anymore either. And he started trying to contact North Korea, Cuba, the Soviet Union, Albania, Yugoslavia, like all kinds of places to see where he could move to next because obviously this Guyana thing was not working out. And uh, surprisingly, not one of these countries responded. They were like, oh, no, th no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so Jones' health was declining really bad. By the end of 1978, he had like super high blood pressure. He was telling people he had lung cancer, which wasn't true, but he had a bunch of other health issues. And he was living in the jungle with a very, very big drug problem. And he was starting to be concerned that people were going to see him as a a guy for who he really was yeah like they were he was worried that people were going to see him just as like a like jim jones instead of like their god so things were bad like worst case scenario and then congressman leo ryan decided he was going to jonestown to check up on what the hell was going on so leo ryan and 19 people including eight concerned relatives, eight members of the media, his legal advisor, a delegate from Guyana, and a U.S. embassy member flew to Georgetown, Guyana on November 14, 1978. And it took three days for the lawyers and Sharon Amos on her stupid radio to talk Jim Jones into letting the congressman and the family members into Jonestown to see for themselves, like, if everything was all right. But, like, on the congressman's part, like... Shouldn't he have gone already, like, having everything approved so it wasn't such a disaster to get there and stuff? Like, 
Although I guess I don't know. Can he contact them? I don't know. They're not even in the United States anymore. I don't. Eh. Well, they didn't have any issues getting into Guyana or Georgetown or anything. It was just the gates of Jonestown. Like they needed Jim Jones to be like, well, okay, come in," <laughs> and he wouldn't. <laughs> Well, that's kind of what I mean. Like, don't you think that they would have been like, hey, you know, hey, Jim Jones, we're coming. I think they tried. Let's get all this stuff. Get... Oh, okay. And Jim Jones said, no, thanks. And they were like, well, we're going to come anyway and see what's up. So on November 17th, 1978, Leo Ryan, eight members of the media, his legal advisor, Jackie Spear, and a few concerned relatives flew to Port Kaituma, which is an airstrip that's like six miles from Jonestown. It's the closest place you can get to. And then... You got to truck it over to Jonestown. They decided to leave Tim and Grace Stone in Georgetown because they thought it would be an unnecessary aggravant to Jim Jones. They thought if they showed up with Tim and Grace Stone that Jim Jones would just lose his cool. Yeah, no, I get it. So they left them back at Georgetown and they were like, all right, we're going to go see what's up. Maybe try to get your kid. We'll be back. Honestly, I'd want to stay in Georgetown too. Yeah, no kidding. So when they're met at the airstrip by Jones's armed guards, they were led into Jonestown where this massive feast and festival was being held to welcome them. There was laughter and music and dancing and tons of food. Everything seemed amazing. Congressman Ryan was actually like pleasantly surprised by what he saw. And he even gave a speech that night that was like, seems like y'all are happy, you know? Seems like everything's good. Yeah, he, I, yeah. I mean, talk about biting it hook, line, and sinker. He totally did. Yeah. Like because everybody, because everyone was telling him it was great. Yep, everybody told him it was great. And come to find out later, those three days that Jones wouldn't let them in, they were practicing for what everybody was going to say and do, and they were trying to get food there and everything so they could have this feast and make it not seem like everybody was starving. I'm sure everyone was so happy too to be eating yeah. like they were. Yeah, so they probably were happy. <laughs> You know, at least that night. Yeah, no kidding. So everybody told them that they were there under their own free will. They were singing and dancing and music. It was great. Except later in the evening, a man named Vernon Gosney slipped a reporter a note that said, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. This cameraman didn't realize that he had passed him a note and accidentally dropped it. And some little kid in the crowd like, tried to scream out that and like tell on Vernon Gosney for passing a note. Kids, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> but these kids were raised in this. Like they were raised to tattle. 100%. They were brainwashed. They were, This was like their, this was all they knew. Yeah. So the media guy showed the note to Congressman Ryan and then him and Jackie Spear discussed it. And he ended up telling Vernon that he would have, him and Monica would have the first seats on the plane out of there the next day because they were the first to ask for help. And Vernon was like, okay, cool, but can you shh? Because I might be dead by tomorrow if you keep talking yeah, about this. Yeah, you, you know, not say everything that's going on there. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it it's kind of like now, retrospect, Congressman Ryan, I don't think, realized how much danger he was in. He had this, like, sense that, like, the members of the media and his congressional shield would protect him. And the media kind of was like, Congressman Ryan will protect me. But, like, nobody actually brought any protection. So, I don't know. Like you said, the whole trip seems like could have been planned better, but I think they were trying to be not alarming. They were trying to come on like a friendly, we just want to see what's up visit. I don't think they really wanted to do anything. I think they were just like, okay, we're just going to appease a bunch of people. Yeah. I think they wanted to go, make sure nobody was being held against their will, and then leave. So, Congressman Ryan and Jackie Spear and a couple of other people stayed the night at Jonestown that night while other members in their in the party, the media and all that kind of stuff, they went back to Port Kaituma and then came back to Jonestown the next morning. But while getting ready to head out after doing like tours of the facilities all day and all that kind of stuff, they confronted Jones about the note and they said, "Hey, We're taking Vern and Monica because they passed this note and they want to get the hell out of here. And Jones was furious, but he tried to hide it. He was like, well, fine. If they want to leave, they leave, you know. And he tried to be like, you guys are always welcome back. And but you could he was like seething when they told him. So while this is going on, the lawyers for Jones were telling him, like, this is a huge success. Only two people out of almost a thousand want to leave. Like, that's fantastic. Like, Leo Ryan was going to go back to the United States going, everything's great. We only brought two people home. And they weren't being held against their will. They just wanted to come home. 
But soon, more and more members would come forward begging the congressman to take them with him. Eleven other members could feel like the rising tensions in the air and saw what was happening and decided to sneak out of Jonestown during the hustle and bustle. And they ran in the opposite direction to another town that was like miles away. Turns out this would save their lives. They'd be some of the only survivors. Thank God. So two or three more families came forward that day asking to leave. And Jones publicly said everybody could leave and like gave his permission and all, which it's like, I don't need your fucking permission. I'm an adult. I'm, like, I'm getting out of here. Bye. But he was you know, blessing their leaving, but he was fuming. So everything's being loaded on these trucks and tractors and to head to Port Kaituma Airstrip to leave. And another man named Al Simon and his kids came up and asked Ryan to take them. But before they could leave, his wife started screaming and yelling because she didn't want him to leave with her kids. So Ryan sent the truck to the airstrip and stayed back to see if he could work out this custody situation because she wanted to stay and her husband wanted to leave. So in the middle of dealing with this hellacious situation, the worst rainstorm in Jonestown history, just the skies opened up and it just started raining cats and dogs. So everybody ran for the pavilion. And while they're in there waiting out the storm and working out the custody issue, a temple member attacked Congressman Ryan with a knife. Like? stabbed him like multiple times or like once or what was the actually what was the situation there he actually never stabbed congressman ryan he grabbed congressman ryan and held the knife to him but then other temple members took him to the ground and the guy actually got cut pretty bad on his hand but leo ryan didn't get cut but he got blood all over his shirt but he was like oh wow oh shit like i'm in big danger (laughs) like I think that was the first time he realized, like, this is not good. These people are going to kill me. And he was like, I got to get the hell out of here. So he left. Hell yeah. He left Al Simon and his children and everything. He's like, I promise we'll figure this out, but I got to get out of here. Like, they're going to kill me before I can figure anything out. So he runs to catch up with the truck that had just left. When Congressman Ryan runs up to the truck, another guy named Larry Layton, Carolyn's ex-husband and a trusted inner circle member, ran up and asked to go with them, which all the other members tried to tell Leo Ryan, like, he's suspicious as fuck. He's like Jim's right-hand man. Don't let him. But Leo Ryan's like, if he wants to leave, just like you guys, I have to bring him home. So they take him with them. But everybody's like, we need to keep an eye on Larry because he's bad news. So when they get to the airstrip and they started boarding, there was two planes. There was like a bigger one and a smaller one. They put like a couple people and Larry on the smaller one. And then all the other people are loading up on the big one. And Larry pulls out a gun and starts shooting everybody on the plane. And just then, a tractor trailer with like nine other guys all holding rifles pulls up and opens fire on everybody getting on the planes. Oh, man. Yeah. And the first couple seconds of the shooting was caught on tape by NBC cameraman Bob Brown before he was was shot and killed. Yeah, he filmed his own murder, which is so gnarly. Yeah, so when the shooting was over, the smaller of the two planes, the little Cessna, with the two pilots flew back to Georgetown with the injured passengers that were on that plane already. They just like hopped in the plane and took off. I'm sure they set out to get help, but they left behind nine injured people and five people who were actually passed away on the runway. And the reason they didn't take the bigger plane and take everybody with them is because the bigger plane was disabled in the shooting. It wouldn't fly. They had to take the small plane. Right. Wow. But unfortunately, this was kind of not the worst part of what was going on. No, not yet. But the five who didn't make it was the NBC reporter Don Harris, Temple defector Patricia Parks, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, Greg Robinson, who was a photographer for The Examiner, and Congressman Leo Ryan, who was shot more than 20 times. Other injured people like Jackie Spear and Vernon Gosney were taken in by locals after hours of laying on the runway in agony. They spent the night in a tent drinking rum as their only painkiller. Like, the locals didn't know what to do for them, so they were just like, you want to get drunk? Like, They were like, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, they weren't rescued until later the next day. So, meanwhile, back at Jonestown, uh, Jim Jones immediately lost his shit. After Leo Ryan left with all those defectors, he just lost it. 
He called Sharon Amos on the radio in Georgetown and told her to send his adult sons, who were actually in Georgetown for like a basketball tournament. They were part of like the Jonestown team and they were playing the Guyanese Nationals. And he told them. How good was that game? Oh, it was terrible. They even said they got their ass kicked. Like they were terrible. Really? Yeah. Well, they were starving to death. They had no food and they were like couldn't sleep they could how could they possibly be any good at basketball yeah so anyway he told his adult sons and some of the other people on the basketball team you need to get back to jonestown right now we need to meet mr frazier which was their code for we're doing this revolutionary suicide situation and his sons were like hey no thanks we're gonna play the guyanese national team again tomorrow because like we lost pretty bad today and we kind of want to lose less we want to make up for it yeah (laughs) yeah And so they're like, no, thanks. We're not doing that. And they were really nervous because they were like, this seems like he's serious because it went radio silent after that. Like they couldn't get a hold of Jonestown. And so his sons and the basketball team members and stuff, they went to the U.S. Embassy to see if they could help. Like, can you help us figure out what's going on? And when they got back to the house in Georgetown that Sharon Amos ran with the radio and everything, Sharon Amos had taken the code seriously. And it was gruesome. She had slashed the throat of her two small children. And then her and her adult daughter, Leanne, slit each other's throats. And they were all dead. How? I mean, simultaneously, like just held knives to each other's throat and went, okay, go. Yep. Oof, man. (sighs) Oh, my God. And one of the saddest interviews I watched, too, was Leanne's dad was one of the concerned family members that was there with Congressman Ryan. And he had spent the whole day with her in Georgetown. And then he went back to his hotel. She went to this place and her and her mom killed each other. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. He was trying to do everything he could to get him out. Yeah. He really did. And he really just wanted a relationship with his daughter. Like, he's like, I don't care if you want to stay here, but I want to be able to see you. So he literally flew to Guyana to see her. Like, that's so sad. So back in Jonestown, Jim gave the order to his doctor, Larry Shat. I feel like his last name is Shat, and I don't think it is. (laughs) Did Larry Shat his pants? (laughs) Yeah, it's... S-C-H-A-C-H-T. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's Shat. Larry Shat. Anyway. Sh- oh, poor Larry. Scat? No, that's even worse. I like Shat a lot. We're yeah, I think it's Shat. It. We're going to go with it. So he told Larry to mix up a real batch of the poison juice. Like, no more dress rehearsals. This is game time. So Larry and some other aides mixed up these huge vats of grape Flavorade. They didn't even use cool. Flavorade? Like that yeah, that doesn't even sound very good. Like flavorade? Like, oh god. Yeah. Jim Jones was such a cheap bastard. He used knockoff Kool-Aid even at the end. Like, are you kidding me? You can't even pop for real Kool-Aid? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's ninety-nine cents for a gallon, I think, so it's a little expensive. Yeah. I don't think it was the Kool-Aid that was expensive. I'm pretty sure it was the promethazine and chloropromazine and chloroquine and chlorohydrate and diazepam and cyanide that was in it. Yeah, that could have been. That probably tasted pretty bad, too. Yeah. So they mixed enough cyanide and all these other tranquilizers and everything in there for 1,800 lethal doses of this juice. So 1,800. I mean, double the amount of people that they had. Yeah. So there was for sure plenty to go around. Exactly. So he called an emergency meeting in the pavilion. There's a 44 minute audio tape titled the death tape where you can listen to this whole thing go down. I don't want to listen to it. No, it's horrible. So Jim is telling them to hurry and we have to do this and die with dignity and shut up and don't scream and don't cry. And it's like this. It's horrible. And he just talks nonstop for 44 minutes. It's like, even at the end, you can't even let them do this in peace. Like, shut up. He just wants to hear himself speak. He just loves to hear himself talk. Oh, my God, it's the worst. So they start with the babies. They administer this lethal dose of grape flavor aid through syringes into these babies. And then they move on to the kids and then the adults. And once the adults started to see how it was affecting the children, obviously panic ensued. 
because it was not peaceful and quiet and go to sleep and we're doing this great thing. It was horrible. The worst. Death by cyanide is terrible. Yeah, it sounds pretty bad. Yeah. People were kind of like, I mean, they were panicking and they didn't want to do it. And a lot of them didn't even want to give it to their kids. And then he was forcing them or making other people do it. But this turned into... You know, this a lot of times people say it was a mass suicide, but yes, some people took it willingly because they still really believed in Jim Jones or they were so tired and depressed and over this horrible life they were living that they took it. But there was a lot of people that did not take it willingly. They were either forcefully injected or shot. Oh, damn. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I thought pretty much everyone was on board with it but no you could hear it on the tapes well there's people all around you like falling down dead and they're not just like oh falling down dead like it's torture death by cyanide like robs your body of oxygen you literally suffocate to death it's super painful that sounds terrible yeah Uh, obviously like duh but i mean that's just yeah people were like we don't want to do this let's go to russia let's do that like they were offering him like other ways out and he's like just Throw it in their mouths. Like, a lot of people were forced to take it. So, in the end, though, Jim Jones was a coward and didn't take it himself because he watched what happened to everybody else. And so, he had somebody, well, it was ruled a probable suicide, but it's likely that he had somebody else shoot him in the head because he was not even willing to do it himself. (laughs) So, at at the end, he's just a giant coward. Like, yep, most of these other freaking leaders, you know, leaders i use the term loosely but still yeah like just like most of these guys he just goes out in a not a blaze of glory whatever the opposite is <sighs> yeah you know 900 people died because of this yeah but in the first days after the massacre the estimated numbers that were coming out were two to three hundred so families of people that were living here had a lot of hope that not everybody died sure there was really days where people were like, well, where's everybody else? Like, let's rescue them. They were doing aerial, like, because they didn't know what was going on in there, so they couldn't just ambush it. And so they were doing aerial flyovers, and the estimated was 200. And then when the Guyanese officials actually got in there, that number doubled pretty quickly. They were like, oh, we think it might be a lot more. And then when they started removing the bodies from Jonestown, that's when they really got a more accurate number because they would lift up a body and there would be children underneath the body. So there was literally bodies on top of bodies and the number eventually like tripled. And it ended up being 918. Oh, my gosh. And, like, this was the single mass casualty of American lives since or before 9-11. And obviously 9-11 has taken that number. But, I mean, that's how big this was. And I think it's incredibly, you know, important to think about. It's also really important to look at the pictures, too, of what this looked like. Yeah, because you don't even know how much 918 is until you look at it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You look down at this and you're just like, oh, my God. It's it's way more than you picture. Yeah, way more. Yeah, the Guyanese officials couldn't even handle it, and especially not in, like, a timely manner. And, you know, it's hot and humid. This is not a good climate for this to take days. Right. So the U.S. Air Force was brought in to transport the bodies back to the United States. Yeah, very few people survived Jonestown. There was some, like some of the defectors that survived the shooting at the airstrip survived. Some of the people that were still in the United States survived. The 11 that had snuck off when all the commotion was going on, they survived. The basketball team that was in Georgetown, they survived. But people who were in Jonestown when it happened, there was only two There was a 79-year-old man named Grover Davis who was hearing impaired because he's 79. (laughs) So he missed the announcement altogether? He He missed the announcement to come to the pavilion over the loudspeaker. By the time he had, like, come out of wherever he was, if he was in, like, a a hut or something, he saw people dying on the ground and he he knew. He's like, oh, my gosh, they're doing it, like, for real. So he laid down in a ditch and pretended to be dead. That's banana. Like, yeah, that's crazy. That's so nuts. And then there was a 76 year old woman named Hyacinth. 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 Hyacinth sounds good. We'll go with that. Yeah. There was a 76 year old woman named Hyacinth that realized what was happening and she crawled under her bed and hid and never came out. That's probably a smart thing to do. Yeah. You know, just, well, not going out there. Yeah, she didn't come out until the next mor- morning after everybody was dead. So Grover Davis and this hyacinth. What do you do? Like you look, you're two people and you're 
late seventies and you just look at each other. I mean, yeah, you, and they you were can't stuck repopulate there. the world with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and they were stuck know? there until somebody came to rescue them, which was days. Yeah, of course. Of course so. it was. Like crazy. Yeah. There was also a few others that had slipped out like into the jungle, like past the armed guards and were rescued later. A couple of these girls survived like four or five days in the Guyanese jungle with no food, no water. Not, like they were in bad shape when they were found. Yeah, I bet they were. I mean, they were already malnourished to begin with. Yeah. But like I said, not many survived. In all, there was 918 people who died. And that included six-year-old John Victor Stone, who they did not get out of there to give back to Tim and Grace. Even though they had won custody of him, Jim Jones never gave him back. Wow. So, Also, three-year-old Chemo, his other son. Oh, yeah. And hundreds and hundreds of other innocent kids. That's nuts. I mean, I obviously I'd heard of this story and stuff, but I didn't, I've never done like a deep dive into it. Yeah. To know like about more of the people and the, like the absolute tragedy that this was in it. And it was, it was totally so crazy. And like to see where he came from, you know, as we know now, like from such small beginnings to this, you know, like, wow. Yeah. And it's hard to like the research on this was really hard for me because he seemed like in the beginning he was really on to something, you know, like he was. A good guy, it seemed. Absolutely. And he did so much good for so many people to then just go so off the fucking rails. So in the aftermath, though, it was found that Jones and the church had like $10 million in foreign accounts and cash and gold. He asked for it to be donated to the USSR. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. But it wasn't. Oh, good. Yeah, no, they were like, your will doesn't mean shit. We're going to throw it away. And they good. used the money to transport the bodies back to the U.S. and then also to settle settlements from lawsuits from surviving family members, you know, who sued to get some of that money. Yeah. You get a little something for all of their pain and suffering. Yeah. And Larry Layton, the inner circle member who defected right at the end and then went to the airstrip and started shooting everybody. He was the only person who was ever prosecuted for anything that happened at Jonestown. Because he was the only surviving. I was going to I that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, was there anybody else to prosecute? Because no. doesn't sound like it. No. They all went back to Jonestown and drank the Kool-Aid or the Flavor-Aid. The Flavor-Aid. Yeah. So Larry Layton was the only one and he actually only got 18 years in prison. That I mean, that does not seem long enough for this. I mean, I know he wasn't the mastermind. Right. Which is he why. He was manipulated. I'm sure that was part of his defense and stuff. Yeah. But like it was. this, I mean, he played a tremendous role in this. Yeah. And by the end, a lot of them did. Like, even on the, the death tapes, you can hear other people that are yelling at members who don't want to take it, like, to take, like, he just, he had a way of, like, making people do what he wanted. And it would have been awesome if he just stuck with the good shit, but no, he had to go all Hitlery. Yeah, no kidding. Like, he was on the right path, and then he just went off the deep end real quick. Yep. So the moral of this story is please do not join a cult. And I'm glad you said that because of the two of us, we've talked about it. I am the more likely one to join a cult because you ask tons of questions and <laughs> I just follow along and join it. So yeah, you would ask more questions, everybody. I'm taking the same advice, especially if your pastor starts talking to you about his sex life. That's always a big red flag. Yeah. That <laughs> ask any kid involved in any of the churches growing up. That's probably not where you want to be going. Nope. Or if they start making you sign confessions that aren't real or even are real. Just be careful, guys. Don't, and definitely don't move to a different country with your pastor. I think that's a good indication, too. Yep. All right. Well, also, don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA Dough Project. I guess unless it's a missions trip, huh? If it's a missions trip, you can go visit. You can visit different countries, but yeah, you don't want to you don't want to move anywhere with your pastor, but make sure you go to our Instagram at from crime to crime, our TikTok at from crime to crime. Erica is doing wonderful things over there. We still have a Twitter as of right now, but we're not paying for the blue check mark, so you can go see us there. We're still hanging around. We'll see how much longer, but are we anywhere else in the world? I don't know. Anywhere? Yeah. If you find us anywhere else, I don't even know what you're talking about about Twitter, so I'm pretty out of it. <laughs> I'll have to give you an update on Twitter and what's going on with with old Elon. But if you do find us anywhere else in the world, please let us know because we probably shouldn't be there and we should know that. So unless we <laughs> should be there and then we'd like to know that, too. So, yeah. All right. Well, I love you. All right. I love you, too. Bye. Bye.